0: Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome back to the Data Stack Show, where you get information on all things data from me and Costas. We have an exciting guest today. Jakob from DeepNote. Kostas, I'm really interested in asking Jakob about notebooks in general. I mean, we've talked about the sort of ML ecosystem some, and we've talked a lot about analytics on the show, but I don't know if we've ever had sort of a basic, you know, 101 on notebooks, right? And talked about where they came from, what they're used for. Um, and why there are you know multiple options sort of emerging, including Deep Note in the notebook space. So that's what I'm going to ask about. I want the 101 and some history on notebooks because I don't think we've talked about that yet.
1: Yeah, I'm very interested in like sharing what Jakub is going to answer to your questions. To be honest, because I'm also having like the same questions as you, but. I'd love also like to get a little bit more into the, let's say, what's the relationship of like the notebook compared like to other paradigms that we have uh, in writing code and engineering, Mm. right? Like we have IDEs, we have Excel, right? Like the spreadsheet model. I'm very interested, like to hear where, what kind of gap? If there is a gap or what is going to substitute notebooks, right? From these paradigms, that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, like notebooks have been like the more like commonly used among data scientists, ML engineers, AI scientists, right? So it would be interesting to hear from him about all these AI craziness that is happening right now, like how it has been, let's say, supported by Notebooks, right? So that's what I have in my mind. And as always, I'm pretty sure that like, more questions will come out. So let's go and talk with him.
0: Well, let's do it. Jakob, welcome to the Data Stack Show. We are so excited to talk about all sorts of things, Notebooks, AI, I mean, we're going to cover a lot of stuff. Uh, so thanks for giving us some of your time. Hey, Eric, thanks for having me. All right. Well, we always start with your background and kind of what you're doing today. So tell us how you got into data and then how you started DeepNote.
2: Sure. So my background is primarily in in developer tooling. This is something that I have been doing as long as I can remember. Uh, And there was something always very magical about building tools for other builders. And naturally, if you are a software engineer, you get very... Drawn to this concept of building tools for other engineers. Mm. And I've been doing this for quite some time, and on, on in many different areas, in many different setups, I've been doing a lot of research in the space. I, I spent a lot of time in human computer interaction research. I studied the usability of programming languages, but I also spent a lot of time in the in the area of machine learning. What are the things that we could do there both on that, let's call it the interface level as a user of those models, but also as a, as someone who is training those models and the tooling that can help you out with that. So that's my primary background, but I also spent, yeah, just the idea of building, building tools is very connected to the idea of building products in general. So my background also touches some of that. UI and design areas, something that you pretty much have to do if you are you know, at least somewhat serious about human computer interaction.
0: Yeah. Very cool. And what what led you to starting DeepNote? What was the... Can you maybe even just describe sort of the moment where you said, okay, I'm going to build this toolset? I think I actually can. I,
2: I was thinking about this and I realized there there was a moment where I saw Jupiter for the first time, and this was very much an academic setting. This might have been back in 2015, 2016, sometime around that area. And I used to be walking the floor of computer Lab- Lab- laboratory back in Cambridge, and I would be looking at what all the other people are doing. And there used to be this interface these early versions of Jupyter that you would see more and more often on on the screens. And yeah. it's like one of those things that for, at the beginning, you don't really understand. Like, hey, like this doesn't look very modern. It looks a bit clunky. You try to install it on your own computer and you realize that that's not easy at all. You actually have <laughs> to go through quite a lot of uh, steps before you even yeah. like, manage to run this. And even if you manage to run this, It kind of looks like a software that was built a long time ago, like in the past, but despite all of these things and, you know, all the things that are always connected with early versions of something such as stability, you could see it just growing and there was a group of people who really loved to use Jupyter. The interesting part begins where. There was also a group that absolutely hated Jupyter. <laughs> and you would often have this like these two groups of people in very close proximity. Like especially if you are if you had anything to do with machine learning. Because yeah. machine learning by itself this, combines these two two different ways of thinking about software, like the idea of exploratory programming versus the idea of software engineering. Mm. And suddenly, if people are looking at the same problem for different layers or through different methodologies, they might not really agree on like what's the best approach on how to build things. So this yeah. is my first introduction to Jupyter. And as a result, the first introduction to notebooks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just so we can level set, just give us a quick overview. I want to go back and talk about notebooks in general, but just give us a quick overview of what DeepNote does.
2: So we are all probably familiar with traditional IDEs, traditional code editors, where you open up your favorite one. You know, it could be VS Code, it could be PyCharm, it can be plenty of others uh, out there and usually spend time writing and reading code. And it's purely a code. It's, It's an interface purely for editing code. But when it comes to notebooks, they introduce something new. They introduce this idea of mixing both text and, and code in the same document. This was pretty much the first version of Jupiter that said, Hey, why don't we also add markdown to, to Python? It might be pretty useful for situations where I want to describe what is happening in, mm. in that code and turns out. As you are either training models or you're running some analysis, it's very helpful to add more context than what just the the Python comments allow you to do. So that's the idea behind behind the notebooks as an interface, the place where you can combine both text and code. There are some philosophical backgrounds to this. You know, there's this whole idea of literate programming where this existed quite a while ago, but not in the same context. Like Literature Programming used to talk about description of what is happening. Notebook tried to actually put it next step to the next step, the next level where you would actually bake it like, pretty much like what was the, the textual elements of the Notebook would be probably as at least as important, sometimes even more important than the code itself. And this was the idea that we got really excited about because turns out this is a type of interface that allows you to bring much wider audience to the tool itself. It's no longer as scary. Like you are sending someone a notebook, they can actually find some anchors, they can find a heading that can find an explanation of what's going on. If we're trying to do the same thing with a plain old Python file, it's very unlikely that a non-technical uh, viewer would be able to make any sense of it. But it turns out you can do something like that in a notebook. So this is something we got very excited about when we were thinking of the future of notebooks. And well, we were not quite happy with the current state-of-the-art that we are seeing. And we're also not happy that there were only two, types of, only two types of cells. Why there couldn't be more? Like, why do we have to just work with Python? Why do we have to work just with Markdown when there are so many other different building blocks that actually go into our day-to-day work? For example, there's actually more people writing SQL out there than, than Python. Why is there no native SQL block in notebooks. Every single notebook kind of starts with the idea of describing what's happening. And trying to learn Markdown just to give a title to your notebook also didn't really seem something that was like very intuitive and very natural for users. So for us, DeepNote is kind of natural evolution of a notebook. We think about it as a notebook 3.0 And we can maybe talk about this later in the, in the show, like what was the notebook 1.0, was notebook 2.0. But yeah, the way how we think about DeepNote is this next generation of a notebook interface that's very easy to get started with. Something that's naturally intuitive, something that should be as easy to understand as a spreadsheet, but at the same time, something that's really powerful, something that where you can build pretty much anything where the sky is the limit. Something that could be really compared all the way to this full-fledged, really powerful IDs.
0: Super interesting. I actually think it'd be, I think it'd be helpful if we did talk about Notebook 1.0 and Notebook 2.0, because you know, I know a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with doing some sort of work in a notebook environment but there are also probably some who are less familiar. So I know early on the idea of a notebook, of course, included sort of the ability to write Markdown and subscribe. And so it combines sort of text and code, but obviously there's other functionality around, you know, cells and, and running different parts individually, as opposed to just executing a single, you know, a single chunk of Python code. So just yeah. give us a description of 1.0 and 2.0. So depending,
2: of, depending how far do we want to go back? But let's say that the first versions of a notebook started to appear sometime in the late 80s, like you would have this concept, you would have this thing called Mathematica. And not that many people used it, primarily because this was a very specific tool targeted at a very specific audience, primarily people who were doing math, statistics, kind of like more of an academic type of work. And it was actually the first, the whole gen- first generation of notebooks that were catering this very academic audience of mathematics, statistics, physics. And we would talk about Mathematica, MathCat, Maple, these types of tools. And this is how it pretty much stayed for the next 20 years. Still like a very niche tools tool that didn't really make much noise in other areas until let's say early 2010s with the first release of the visual part of IPython notebook. So IPython as a tool has been has been even earlier, but I think it was like version 0.12 or something like that, which added like not even a major version, right? that the <laughs> added this visual interface that you could connect through your browser and instead of you typing in all the python commands in your terminal you would actually go to localhost 8888 in your browser and there would be this like very basic interface where you could be writing python in a nice text area and this somehow changed the game suddenly this really is made the idea, the concept of a notebook went like going from like small niche to a much wider audience. And at the beginning, yes, like it stayed mostly in the academic setup. That's where at the end of the day, Jupiter, that's where the Jupiter is coming from. But over time, we started to see this appearing more and more often in industry. As people were taking what they've learned during their during their studies and actually applying this in their in their jobs, and this is something that we would describe as a notebook two probably the best represented by Jupiter as the yeah. most prevalent implementation, because it started to add some of these features, but it was still relatively limited in that concept, like some of those. Limitations such as, hey, how difficult it is to actually install Jupyter in the first place. Uh, How do you deal with collaboration? What do you do about reproducibility? And also just the limitation to these two basic building blocks, Python and Markdown, kind of made Jupyter never really escape that, let's call it, a data scientist or data analyst type of crowd. This is something that we are only seeing with Notebook 3.0, that really started to appear like, very late. When Deep notebook started back in 2019, we were thinking, there is something really magical happening here. Like we have a complete new type of computational medium, which is not just this like, not just this, like Nice, cool thing that few people care about, but something that really appeared to be this holy grail of human computer interaction research for the past 40 years, where we're trying to find a tool that'll be really easy to get started with, but at the same time, be very powerful, not l- letting you well, run into scalability issues as you start to work on more complex or yeah, more complex problems or as you start to involve more people into that process.
0: Makes total sense. Let's dig in on collaboration a little bit because I know that when you think about, again, like a lot of ML work, a lot of you know notebook workflows rely on some level of local development, right? And so you're... You know, you're running a lot of things locally on your machine, which obviously makes collaboration difficult or at a minimum requires you to implement, you know, different processes that, you know, you have to run every time that you want to like push your work, test your work or pull down, you know, other people's work. Can you describe some of the specific pain points there? And then, you know, what does actually being able to collaborate in a notebook look like and what does that unlock and who does it unlock it for? Sorry, there are like tons of questions. There. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's just start with what are the collaboration limitations with, you know, say Notebook
2: 2.0? This was very interesting for us to see because we were looking at notebooks and thinking, wow, we finally have something that can be used by anyone in your organization, not just that you know, small number. Of of data scientists sitting in a corner, but actually something that can be shared with anyone in, in your organization, whether these are product managers or you know, BPO finance or C-level executives. So we came to, to these hardcore Jupyter users and said, I know the problem that you are feeling, it's collaboration, right? And they would look at us and would just say what are you talking about? What collaboration? I absolutely do not want to have anything to do with collaboration. That's yeah. an anti-pattern. Please stay away from me. <laughs> and this didn't really make sense, right? Because you are you are working in a setup where you absolutely hate the fact that you open up a notebook, you query your warehouse, you run some models, but end of the day, it's not like sitting on your laptop Forever, Like you need to share it with someone at, at some point, like someone asked you a question and I want to give them the answer and having to suddenly open up a completely new tool where this would be PowerPoint and it would be like taking of your of your graphs or findings or just like sending this one off through through email. Like we we were very surprised that this is not something that already existed. And it can and, and so we spend a lot of time thinking about this and trying to figure out why are so people like why are so many people unhappy about about collaboration? And just to be clear, again, this was the same thing that we were seeing earlier, where there was one group that was very loud about how amazing notebooks are, and there was another group very loud about how this should never have been invented, how they are waiting, counting the days. <laughs> Until it disappears. And like within this group of notebook enthusiasts, you again would have this two very loud groups. First saying, collaboration is a terrible idea, just give me a nicer output. Don't use JSON. I use some kind of YAML format so that I can put it into my into my GitHub and let the collaboration happen there. But there will also be this, again pretty vocal group, they'll say, no, I don't want to be using Git. I'm a data scientist. I'm a data analyst. I am running hundreds of experiments every single day. You can't possibly ask me to write Git commit message for every single one of them. I literally have no idea what I'm doing right now. I'm just exploring as much as possible. And if you want me to write Git commits, it's just going to be named experiment 1 experiment 2 experiment 3 <laughs> so this is this is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and we realized that there is a concept there is already there's already been research done in this area that describes these two types of workflows what most people are familiar with is this idea of traditional software engineering this is a type of work where you know what needs to happen you know what's expected of you Like you have this very nice, almost waterfall-y way of working where someone comes up with an idea, develops some kind of prototype, sketch, design, pretty much, you know, gives you a blueprint of what needs to be built. And then the software engineer comes in, they take the the mockup, turn it into something that's actually usable something that actually works, something they can put into production. And then we have this very mature software engineering ecosystem that knows what to do with this, with this artifact. They know how to version it. They don't know how to deploy it. They know how to monitor it. There is a very nice ecosystem of tools around this. But turns out there is a different way of working with data, something that we call exploratory programming. And under exploratory programming, we can imagine multiple different things. But the overall idea is that at the beginning, you don't really know what you are going to find out. Like you don't have any kind of blueprint. You don't know whether you are going to be working on this problem for five minutes, five hours, or five years. Because it's very likely that no one has asked this question before and you don't really know what you're going to find out. And in this world... You suddenly have very different goals very different processes than you would have as a software engineer and once we understood this suddenly like everything fell into place everything clicked and you understand that okay we have this really powerful suite of tools all these call all the ids that have been built specifically for software engineering but turns out what we do is Data teams, as data scientists, as data analysts, is much closer to exploratory programming. Mm. And this is where collaboration also plays part. Because while in software engineering, you actually want to be left alone for most of the time. Like you talk to like you, like you got your requirements. Now you just want to like, close yourself in a dark room and spend a couple of hours writing code and then emerge victorious uh, with the final product. The idea of um, exploration and data analysis is actually much more collaborative. It's much more iterative. That's also the reason why, if you have, we're working in a spreadsheet. This model of Google Sheets, where you can have multiple people at the same time looking at the same at the same spreadsheet, and being able to quickly collaborate quickly trade, quickly ask each other question, becomes very powerful.
0: Makes total sense. What is that? So I'm really interested to know how you approach collaboration in Deep Note from a user experience standpoint, because on one hand, collaboration can be, you know two people being in the same spreadsheet at the same time, right? To use your example of Google Sheets, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can almost think about that as enabling pairing or, you know, easier review or other things like that. But there are also instances where you might want to actually like communicate with that person you know, which a lot of times will happen, you know, via Zoom call or whatever. How do you approach that? Is it mainly just two people being able to interact with the same notebook? Or are there other ways from the user experience standpoint that you're enabling collaboration?
2: What we found out is that everyone wants to collaborate, but everyone has a different idea of what collaboration means. Mm -hmm. And... Over time, we had to develop some kind of framework how to think about this. And we realized that there are three levels of collaboration. Each of them exists, each of them can exist in the same theme, for example, but they are different in terms of what is the expected outcome. So let's say, let's have a look at what those those levels are. So, level one, is something that feels very natural, something that's happening on smaller scale, where you invite your colleague to pair program on something. We call this small-scale real-time collaboration, where, you, where your main feature is that you have two people looking at the same thing at the same time, fully synchronous. This is where you know, a lot of research goes into this collaboration capabilities and synchronization algorithms, everything that allows you to be, to even like collaborate on that line level as two people are trying to type the same thing at the same time, because both of you spotted the same typo in, in your query. It's very helpful primarily in the, in the educational context where you have the concept of a teacher and a student or maybe a junior data analyst who just got a result of their query and it's full of nulls or they are running into some kind of syntax error and they just want to tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, can you help me out with this? It's just that the person might not be you know, sitting next to them. They might be on the other side of the country and they just want to be able to collaborate in real time over Zoom. But there is also second level. Something that's is much more common in that software engineering world, and we call this the team scale or asynchronous way of communication or collaboration. What does this mean? This is the moment where you actually start to rely more on features such as just commenting, versioning, just being able to see what does happen, what has happened in this document between the time I looked at this last time, and now. Git is really good at this because you can go and manage collaboration and team, in you know, team scale. You don't really need to have all five, 10, 15 people in the same room at the same time to understand what's happening. They can all be working on this somewhat asynchronously through just leaving comments, leaving feedback, and being able to version their code. And there is a third level of collaboration that we found out is very, is very common primarily in data teams. And that's the idea of organizational collaboration. This is the moment where you have larger teams and you would have a data team that's sitting in New York. And then you have a data team that's sitting in Singapore. And suddenly your primary concerns around collaboration are not about real-time synchronization, you don't really care as much about, about comments, what you really care about is whether you can even find work that someone else has been uh, working on. So the concept of putting notebooks into a catalog, into some kind of folders, having a very powerful search to even discover what what has been, what's been happening becomes the primary concern. And once you start thinking about the collaboration of these three distinct levels, you can start reason about this a bit better and understand what kind of, yeah, what kind of user you are targeting with this specific feature.
1: That's very interesting. And it's really made me think about like collaboration inside, like the organization, and I have a question that. Might also like relate a little bit with uh, like the different types of programming that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. but how does like collaboration work when we have teams that need to collaborate that they are not using the same tools, right? As you said, like there is this exploratory programming concept, which is very natural when you're working with data and it's almost, let's say, the opposite of, like, how a software engineer works, right, where you have an algorithm, you have something very deterministic, you have a sequence of, like, steps. And, of course, it might sound, like, very simplistic how we describe it right now, but this simplicity, like, gives rise to a lot of complexity in terms of the tooling, right? Like, we have IDs uh, that the developers are using, we have Git, we have, like, all these things. And no matter what, like when at some point the, let's say the data scientist like finishes her work, like on the notebook, and we won't like to productize or like operationalize, like part of this work, right? The engineers will get into the equation and they have their own tools. So how we can bridge the paradigms together so we can enable also this type of like collaboration. I may be biased because
2: I spent the last, I don't know how many years working on notebooks and studying notebooks, but one thing that we keep, we kept seeing all over again and again was the curse of a data analyst working in with the modern data stack. Mm -hmm. Just the amount of tools that you have to go through from the inception of the idea to to delivery of some kind of insight is pretty, pretty, it's actually pretty wild. There are warehouses out there. There are ETL tools out there. There are exploratory environments. There are dashboards, BI tools. And there are also completely different communication mediums. And they sometimes would work really nicely with each other, but still means that whoever you are collaborating with needs to have the same set of tools on the other side of the wire. And it's pretty interesting because this wasn't always the case. There used to be a time where every single person working with data would have a license of Excel and you would be able to get a question in Excel. You would be able to do all your work in Excel and they would be able to send back same document to whoever was asking this, and you would have data teams collaborating very easily with with product managers, with with business folks, with with finance folks, because they would all be using this one beautiful unified unified interface, unified tool. Turns out, we can't really go back to that world where spreadsheets is used. For everything, because it kind of hit the limits of what you can do in a spreadsheet, and there has been definitely many advances with spreadsheets. Finally, as of of a couple of years ago, we have we have uh, we have notebooks that are they're fully Turing complete, and we can do amazing things with it. But at the same time, we have seen quite a big rise on of amount of data that we are working with, and trying to put. More than you know, a couple of megabytes of data in, in the spreadsheet results in, well, just the fact that you have to figure out how to share this, how to, how to set this over, but also computational limitations of your local machine. Famously, you know, trying to put more than a million rows into an Excel was not the most easiest task and. What we are working with right now these days is definitely much more than the million million rows of data. So we had to start looking for for different tools. And that gave rise of this big Cambrian explosion of different tooling, and you would have a BI tool that specialized like that's specialized in this particular field. Or you would have an you know, analytics tool that's very good at at measuring product product like impact of product changes, you would have you no know, this whole suite of amplitude, mixed panels, and and similar to get a subset of your work done. But when notebooks came along, that something happened, something interesting happened again. And internally we talk of talk about notebooks as this universal computational medium because it really does give you ability to build anything that you want in that one tool itself. And just to be clear, that might not always be the something that we recommend. Like sometimes those specialized tools are much better for the task that you have in, at hand. But it always comes at the cost of complexity. And sometimes you just want to keep things simple. So in in the world of Deepnode, we, are, we already talk about this. We don't have just, first of all, we don't have concept of cells. We have different concepts. We call it blocks because we think of these as building blocks and you could have a block of Python code using another code, another block of Python code, but you would also have a visualization block that can be using one of those variables that you have defined earlier, you would be able to have an input block, which allows you to some kind of interactivity and letting you fine tune some parameters. So all of this, all this combined creates a possibility for new type of computational medium that has pretty much the same beautiful features that we were used to from, from a spreadsheet world, Mm -hmm. but without the limitations of spreadsheets that we run into. Like we sometimes... Yeah, sometimes we go even as far and say, "Hey, we are living this very amazing time where notebooks are the spreadsheet of our era, Uh and there's just so much that's going to be that's going to be possible if we do the implementation right."
1: Yeah, so if we have, let's say, like on one side, one one extreme, like let's say an IDE like Visual Studio, right, like something that someone is using, like to write uh, any type of code. And then on the other extreme, we have Excel, right? Like the spreadsheet paradigm. Both of them as ways to program the computer at the end. right? Like that's what we are doing. In your opinion, the notebook is coming to substitute which one? The IDE or Excel? The spreadsheet, let's say. Yeah. The way how we think about this is that
2: notebook is the perfect medium for exploratory programming whether it is exported data analysis or it's actually writing some python code to find out what is even possible if i can even train the model with high enough accuracy whether the syntax that i remember from five years ago is still valid whether this function that i got from my colleague works the same way how i would expect i expect it to work this is what both books are absolutely amazing at. Mm-hmm. We are not trying to build a tool that's going to replace the traditional software engineering tool stack. We are not going to be you know, building things for monitoring of your, of your pipelines and of your artifacts. But we are going to allow you, we are going to give you an interface that lets you answer your questions very quickly and very efficiently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Got it. And uh, okay. So one of the, let's say like the beautiful things around like notebooks is this mix of like different ways of representing information, right? Like you don't have just the code there. You have the comments, you have like a very rich experience when it comes like to uh, working with, uh, with the machine and we just like uh, entered, like almost like I don't know, probably like a new era when it comes like to compute with with AI, right? Like we have a new way to interact with the machine, with these like large language models, systems like chat GPT and all these things. So two questions, actually. One is, how do you see the notebook being, let's say, affected in a positive way by these new ways of interacting uh, and working? together with a machine. And the other question is, how the notebook supports this AI revolution, right? Because there's like a huge amount of like people, like data scientists, ml engineers, AI scientists. I'm pretty sure the most of them are like probably using some kind of notebook like to work with that, right? So tell us a little bit about that too. Like how, the notebook feed uh, contributed in this revolution, and so then how do you see the notebook change changes because of like these new ways that we have to work with data in the machine? There are two things that are happening right now. If you go
2: and look up a tutorial, a demo on how to work with some new cool hot model that just appeared on hacking Face. Well, it's very likely that you are going to be getting a link to a notebook. It turns out, this is the tool of choice for for training and building those models, primarily because primarily because of able to iterate fast. And by the way, this is just something that has been always true. Like we started to see the rise of exploratory pro- programming, even in back in the first wave of of AI hype was the first time where people started to understand that we might not just the batch processing might not really be enough. And we want to have some kind of more interactive computational environment. Something that allows us to iterate much more quickly. And this has been the case also in the second wave and also in the third wave of AI that we are seeing right now, but right now there is one more thing happening and that's not just the role of a notebook with, for building those large language mod- models um, and AI in general, but also the way how users interact with, with AI. And when you say AI, we kind of mean the whole, you know, whole landscape of, of different tooling that's available today. But if you were to... You have to think what is really happening. We suddenly have, in our hands, a new type of computational paradigm. No longer you need to go and you know, be extremely specific to, to press certain set of buttons that someone else had to put in on the screen for you in order to get your job done. You suddenly have this assistant that you can communicate with in, in natural language and turns out the idle interface for communicating with such such a model seems to be very chatty. It's very iterative. ChatGPT made an amazing demonstration of this when suddenly, like out of blue, you would put a chat on top of an LLM and everyone would just go crazy about how, about extracting value of that LLM. But realistically, like when we look at this, couple of years from now, it is very unlikely that we are still going to be interacting with our, with LLMs in this chat interface. The way how we see this is that you still need something that is much more, much more iterative, but it probably should be a bit more powerful than chat itself. And something that turns out notebooks are really good at. Something that really allows you this fast, iterative feedback loop. A place where you can quickly ask questions and get answers. And something that, by the way, also allows you to do natural execution of the code that you might receive as a result. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example here. Sometimes you want to you know, do two data analysis and you would have a you know, question that you want to ask you would go to your uh, data team and say, hey, can you please give me top five customers in South America? And there are plenty of tools out there, but being able to ask this in a natural way, with natural language, turns out to be extremely powerful. And the LM can give you that answer pretty reliably, as long as it has all the context that is necessary. What we don't see right now is that it is able to do it autonomously from start to finish but can definitely act as your companion as you are as it helps you navigate your data warehouse your data catalog and give you suggestions to say hey maybe you want to go and and query this this snowflake warehouse maybe you want to use this specific this specific table because there have been other analyses of similar kind that have been using it as well. By the way, there is also a knowledge base entry that talks about being careful because back in February last year, we made some changes in how we define who so is our customer and how we how we call it revenue. So with all of these things and all this context, you can get to a pretty good place where the whole idea of self serve just becomes 10x more achievable and more realistic than than what is today.
1: All right, that's very exciting. I can't wait to see like what's next with these LLMs and how they are going to be integrated, like in these environments, like deep Yeah,
2: hundred percent. I mean, we don't really know what's going to happen, right? But it's very unlikely that the current set of tools, you know, whether it's you know, JGPT or, or BART, are really representative of the user interfaces that we are going to be seeing in a couple of years. Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of like this whole new, well, whenever something like this happens, like whenever we see a new kind of paradigm, like there is a certain period of time where we have to go and develop a grammar of how to go and use that paradigm and we have seen this many times before right but i always like to compare this to to the history of cinema because there have been many situations in the past where you would suddenly receive some new capability and when movies came along for example like you would have you would already have an existing entertainment business like you would always you would already have, have radio you would already have people writing stories and, and telling those stories. So when suddenly movies appeared, it wasn't immediate. Like the first couple of years, the first few decades, those movies looked very different from what they are looking right now. When they first appeared, like it wasn't really obvious that you actually want to, for example, attach audio to, to the movie. It took actually you know, a couple of years to, to realize that this might be a good idea. Maybe I want to uh, add sound to a movie. Yeah, the first, yeah, the first couple of movies were extremely static. Like they were just not as much too fun to watch because you would put your camera in one place, shooting the scene without moving whatsoever. Like we would be using the same grammar that we learned from, from radio, where the story, the narrative would just would not be like actually acted, would not be played. It would be more. Three people in the same room reading out loud from their scripts. And that's literally what the movie would show. It'll be like later on that we realize that wow, the camera can actually move around. Maybe we can actually start start panning it. Maybe we can start zooming. Maybe we can start introduce some audio cues and sound effects that might happen slightly earlier than you're actually making making a visual cut. Like all of this led to development of a new grammar Mm -hmm. that allows us to shoot wildly different movies today than what we were able to do before, even though technology is fundamentally still the same. And I think this is pretty much the same situation that we are happening to be right now, where this like really cool new toy, real like very powerful paradigm. Mm -hmm. There is so much we can do uh, with those LLMs. But we are slowly discovering what is that grammar. And I think the first important piece of grammar was chat interface, but I don't think this was the last one. I Mm -hmm. think we're going to see many more of this
1: and I'm hoping that notebook is going to be one of those. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And I think like it's an excellent metaphor that you are giving here, like with, uh, with entertainment. So one last thing from me, and then I'll give the microphone back to Eric. Share something with us about something exciting about DeepNote, like something new that is coming or something new that came to the product, something that you are really excited about.
2: Well, it is, it is June 2023. Everyone's talking about, about one thing only, and that's how you go about implementing, integrating AI into your product. And we, we talked about this, and there is a reason to be, like, to be excited. For us, we see these two two, two trends happening where people like to build their their models in a notebook interface, but also trying to see how far we can take this. DeepTool is always about enabling the citizen data scientist, like giving the power of analysis, not just to a few people in your data team, but to the whole organization has been pretty interesting to watch how with a simple addition of, of LLM and maybe, okay, it wasn't that simple, but the concept of adding LLM into your tool allowed so many more people to complete their task autonomously. Like we would have a set of tools, like set of tasks they would give out to, to our audience. For user testing, for just making sure that the deep node works correctly. And the moment we started to add those AI features, the moment we started to add AI autocomplete, that's currently live in DeepNode, or the moment we started to add suggestions of your next block, or what your next block should be, suddenly it wasn't just the technical audience that was able to call to complete these tasks, it was also this also also all the non-technical folks able to come in and get this, get those questions answered. So this is this place where we are spending all of our time and trying to see how far we can push this.
0: All right. Well, we're close to time. so one one last question for me, and it's it's actually on the same topic. How do you think you know the How do you think the LLMs will change the level of technicality needed for analytics in general, right? I mean, you see that, of course, like non-technical users can come in and ask questions to get answers, but with the ability to significantly augment on the code side as well, you sort of, you know, how technical are you going to need to be to do advanced analytics in the future?
2: I think there's innovation happening on two different fronts, because on the one hand, you can have more mess in your in your tech stack, you can have more mess in in your data catalog, and the LM will actually do a fairly good job in understanding what's in there. But there will always be limitations. And if you can take, if you can harness the power of LM to actually curate this and make sure that you always have your metrics up to date, you always have the definitions of your processes up to date, then suddenly the innovation on the second front of the sales servers of someone coming in and asking a question and getting a correct answer seems to be much more realistic. And we don't really know like how it's going to play out, right? Because we are definitely suffering from the issue of, of hallucination. And if you are going to ask your LM a question, like how do you ensure that you are actually getting the correct answer back? So there is, I don't see, if anything, I see the role of, of data engineers and people who are maintaining, maintaining those pipelines and making sure that all the metadata and data catalogs are up to date. They're only going to be more and more important, but primarily because of the amount of queries that we are going to start seeing from, from the folks in your organization, because no longer are limited by few people in your data team who, who could be asking those questions. Someone can be the entire organization asking those questions without having to wait a week until new GR tickets gets assigned to particular data analyst but having those answers right there in almost in real time when you need them.
0: Love it. What an exciting future. Well, Jakob, thank you so much for joining us on the show. What a great conversation. We learned a ton. So thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah. Thanks for for inviting me. I really enjoyed it as well.
0: What a good conversation with Jakob from Deep Note. I have a couple takeaways. I know maybe we try to do w- one takeaway usually, but one was just the history of the notebook. I really enjoyed learning about that. I think that's such a value to go back and look at where something came from. you know. And Jakob talked about sort of notebook 1.0 and notebook 2.0, and of course they're trying to build notebook 3.0. I thought that was really interesting. I thought the other big takeaway that was that was fascinating was you know when we talked about the traditional notebook workflow, it's very individual happening on your local machine, et cetera. And so we talked we had a pretty long conversation about collaboration. And what is it? Okay, so you have a notebook. It's a great environment, you know for exploratory analytics, another topic you covered. But he talked about these three levels of collaboration, which I thought was a really helpful way, even just to think about from a product perspective, how you consider what to build in terms of collaboration. And it was super interesting, you know, sort of the different users, the different use cases, synchronous, asynchronous, those sorts of things. So those are the two big things that I'm going to keep from the show. I thought they were great. Yeah. Um, There are like a couple of things
1: that I found like extremely interesting. Like, first of all, uh, Jakub gave an amazing metaphor between the entertainment industry and AI and what is happening today and how like AI is kind of like a new medium, let's say, and we need to figure out what are the new ways of like interacting with it and whatever we are doing today, like it's probably not going to be what we'll be using like in a few years from now. Which I find like very fascinating and uh, I want to add on that, that at the end, like the history of like, uh, humans trying like to interact and like build and program these machines that we call computers outside of like. What we are building and how, like we are building stuff that changes our fu- future. Like these evolution happens in parallel with an evolution, like trying to figure out what's the best way of interacting with these machines. Uh, at the end, like all these different systems, from like writing low-level codes to using IDEs to using uh, notebooks to using uh, conversational ways to interact with the machine, it's nothing more than like trying to figure out like more efficient ways of instructing the machine what to do for us. Right. And I think our evolution in this industry goes like hand by the evolution in this human computer interaction, a kind of space, which is very fascinating. And we don't talk that much about it. I think like we'd be talking more about it and I think the conversation is happening right now just because we have AI out there and we try to figure out what to do with this thing, right? So, so we <laughs> figure out like how to interact with it. So anyway, these are like some very interesting topics that we discussed and it will make me like definitely like keep thinking about about these topics.
0: For sure. All right. Well thanks for joining us on the DataStack Show. Uh, Lots of good episodes coming up, so subscribe if you haven't, tell a friend, and we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by RudderStack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.